Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're in sections 14, 15, 16, and 17. 17 is the instructions to the three witnesses and how that's going to happen. But the previous three, 14, 15, and 16, are for the Whitmer brothers. And so now we introduce a whole new family, and now we've got two very different families coming into focus. We've got the Joseph Knight family that we talked about last time. And Mike just did a wonderful job presenting the history of the Knights and what they stand for. Now we turn to the Whitmers. And I think we all need to realize that Come Follow Me is more than just what's written in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not just the Scriptures. We learn from the people who brought those Scriptures forth, the circumstances in which they brought them forth. And the Whitmers are a tremendous lesson for all Latter-day Saints. And so we're going to dive a lot into the history here, because the history of the Whitmer family is is very important, especially when you look at what the Lord says in section 14 to David Whitmer, kind of as a precursor to what's coming. So take everything that we talk about in this podcast and compare it to what we talked about with the Knight family in the last podcast, and that's the lesson I think the Lord is setting up for us. Now, we're going to talk about David Whitmer. He turns his back on Joseph and the church. I know this is a fine line, but I, I'm just kind of using Moroni's words. Moroni says, condemn me not for my imperfections, neither my father for his imperfections, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made known unto you our imperfections, that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. It's in that spirit that we're going to talk about the Whitmers, who walk away from Joseph and the church. David never loses his love of the Book of Mormon. He testifies of the Book of Mormon all his life and to his dying breath, but he turns his back on Joseph and the church. And that's history we need to know. Now, we don't mean to demean the Whitmers, but our podcast today is in the spirit of be thankful that God has let us have this story so that we can all learn to be more wise than maybe some of those who walked away were. So, Mike, take it away. Walk us through the history, not just of David Whitmer, but I want Mike to kind of go through kind of the whole Whitmer family. What did they face, and what do they stand to teach us? And then we're going to come back to section 14. So, a lot of history for a minute. You know, we timestamp everything, so if you want to skip the history, you can know where to turn to. But this is important history, and I would encourage you to hear what happens to the Whitmer family, and then we're going to come back to section 14 and see if we can take a lesson for you and I today in our daily lives. You know, I'm so grateful for that introduction because before the podcast, Bryce and I were talking about this and I said to him, kind of my concerns. I didn't want it to be a, let's bash David Whitmer. And so this is more of a balanced approach, like Bryce said, and I, that was a wonderful introduction. So thank you for that. So of the Book of Mormon's 11 official witnesses, so we have the three and the eight, seven of them are Whitmers, either Whitmers by blood or marriage. 
so much of the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants are coming from this period. 20 of them are received in this period. So a big chunk of church history is happening in and around where the Whitmers are. And I really like how Bryce said, hey, this is a foil. The Whitmers and the Knights kind of take different paths, but they both start in the same space. And so I'm going to kind of go through who they were briefly. We have Christian, Jacob, John, David, and Peter Jr. Those are all Whitmer brothers. And then we have Oliver, who's married to one of the sisters of the Whitmers. And then we have Hiram Page, who's also married into the family. So of the 11 witnesses, seven of them are the Whitmers. What are their ages? Well, from youngest to oldest is Peter Jr., who's 20. David, who's about the same age as Joseph Smith. They're really close in age. He's 24. John, who's 27. Jacob's 29. And Christian is 31-ish, 30-31, right in that ballpark. And so I'm going to quote a lot from a couple different historians. One is a, a fellow by the name of Richard Lloyd Anderson, and he talks about how they have a 100-acre farm that they purchased for about $1,000, which was a lot of money back then, and they had this farming operation, and they had it in Fayette, New York. Fayette, New York is about 30, 35 miles southeast of Palmyra. And so if you were to draw, and we'll put a map in the show notes so you can see it. If you draw a line from Palmyra to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and Harmony is where Joseph and Oliver are doing the translation, it's almost like a straight line southeast. And so it's not quite midpoint. It's about almost a third of the way there. And so it's not Palmyra. It's not Harmony. It's this different place. So how do they know each other? Well, like I mentioned, Catherine marries Hiram Page, a later witness to the Book of Mormon, and later after the organization of the church, Oliver Cowdery, he marries Elizabeth Ann Whitmer in December of 1832. So the church is restored, organized April 6, 1830. A couple years later, Oliver is going to marry Elizabeth. And so Oliver, he's friends with David. They're about the same age. They know each other. And that's kind of the connection, how Joseph meets them. But to backtrack a little bit, I want to talk about the father, Peter Whitmer. So he's the father of all the Whitmer clan. He was a German Reformed member of the church, and his pastor, when Peter and his family joined the church, writes some negative things against him, but then later, um, when he's calmed down a little bit, he kind of recants those things, and I put some of that in the show notes just to illustrate that when Peter joins the church, it causes kind of a ripple in his community, and the preachers don't like this. They don't like this new movement. And so there's a description of Peter in the historical record that I want to share. Peter Whitmer, according to the record, was one of the members of Reverend Willer's congregation. Now, this is the dad, right? Yeah, Peter this Whitmer is the father. Senior. Yeah, Peter there Whitmer. There is a Peter Whitmer Jr. Yeah. He was a quiet, unpretending, and apparently honest, candid, and simple-minded man. Reverend Willers remembers warning Father Whitmer of Joseph Smith's errors and delusions, but my conversation apparently made no impression upon him, and his only response to my arguments was this, and he said in the German language, Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Peter Whitmer was a simple man, and he believed in Jesus, and he comes to the church and he's baptized. He never sees the plates, but his son, Peter Whitmer Jr., does. But Peter and his wife, Mary, joined the church. Now, they first knew of Joseph Smith in 1829, in a time when David, John, Peter, and Elizabeth Ann were still living in the home of the parents, and the married sons and daughter were nearby. 
David later told how he met Oliver on a visit to Palmyra. Both were intensely curious about the plates, like people are talking about this. And as Oliver went to Pennsylvania, where the young prophet was working on the translation, he stopped at the Whitmer home, and he promised to tell David what he found out. So Oliver Cowdery, he's leaving. He's heard about the plates. He's headed southeast. He's going to Harmony, Pennsylvania. And on his way, he stops over on the trip, and he talks to David. And he's like, I'm going to tell you what I find out. And David's like, yes, it's a buzz. Everybody's talking about it. So after Oliver comes down and the translation process is going and they're really moving through the translation process, Oliver Cowdery sends three successive letters to David. That's the connection. When David gets the letters, there's a request. And the request is that they want to get closer to Palmyra so they can finish the translation and then make a second copy. That second copy is going to be called the printer's manuscript. And Bryce, why is that important? Because Joseph Smith learned from the 160, well, from the lost manuscript, never let it out of your possession. So in order to print this thing and take copies to the printer, we're going to copy it word for word onto a new document, and that's what we take to the printer, not the original. So I love that because it just shows that Joseph learned from his mistakes. And he said, look, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I will never let this manuscript out of my hand. I'm comfortable letting a copy out. Out, but I'm not going to let the original out of my sight. And so that's why there's a whole printer's manuscript, which is a huge blessing today because Joseph put the original manuscript in the basement of the Nauvoo house and it's basically got ruined. But the church now owns every page of the printer's manuscript and in very good condition. And so we're able to go back and compare at least what was written in the printer's manuscript with what's were there any errors that crept in? And so this was a huge blessing. But I just love that personality of Joseph to say, I'm not doing this again. I'm going to learn from his mistakes. Yeah, that's so important. And just think about this. You have to dip your pen in an inkwell and write every stinking word. Which, total side note, the errors in the original manuscript that we do have, we don't. We have about 28%, I believe, the errors in the original manuscript that we have are errors of hearing the wrong word. The errors in the printer's manuscript are errors of seeing the wrong word and writing it. So, for example, the er- one, there's an error in the original. Oliver heard weed when it was supposed to be read. But looking at the word read, you would never write the word weed. And so that's just a second witness to that there's no way these guys could have faked this and say, oh, well, in this one, let's put errors that, like you heard it wrong, and then in this one, let's put errors like you saw it wrong. But that's kind of evidence that the book is true. Royal Skousen has really done the work on this. Just tremendous efforts from Royal Skousen. Love his work. So tip our hat to him and all his work on those kinds of questions. So... The letters go back and forth, and David talks to his father and says, Dad, uh, Joseph and Oliver want to come and finish. And there's a really interesting statement where he says, they decided that David should not go for Joseph and Oliver unless they got a witness from God that it was necessary. And so that was kind of like the family decision. So Peter Whitmer says, you know, they're, they're going to be a sign. Well, David at the time, it's the end of May, you know, Joseph and Oliver are going to move to Fayette in June. So that's the time period. And he's got to plow this field. Yeah, he's got planting to do. He would put in plaster of Paris, it's gypsum, and he would kind of sow it into the field. 
And in many of you probably heard this story, how he wakes up one day after this discussion with his dad and five to seven acres were plowed. And he's like, who did this? And he goes to talk to his sister and she's like, I thought the guys that you hired did it. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she says, there are three men out here and they plowed your field for you. And he took that as a sign. And I kind of call this miracle number one in David's life where he's like, well, maybe there's something in this because I didn't pay anybody to do it. Somebody did it. And people just don't want to you know, walk around in upstate New York plowing your fields for free. And so he looked at it as a sign. And so what he did was he hitched up his wagon and he came. So the three Nephites were alive and well back then, weren't they? Mike? Or somebody, right? Something's going on. And so he decides to go down. And so David's father, Peter, was so impressed that he made this statement. He said, there must be some overruling power in this thing. So you can kind of see the faith of the Whitmer family as they're going through their experience with Joseph. And David relates. He says, I don't know who did it. Not only was it done, but it was done just as I would have done it myself with the plow left standing in the furrow. So I find that really interesting that it was done, but it was like, it was as if I had done it. And I'm just going to throw this out there. Sometimes maybe you've had experiences with miracles where the Lord's communicated to you, but not only has he talked to you, but he's done it in such a way that you know it that was he knows for you. you. Right. I mean, that's to me, that's significant, like a little tender mercy. And so... He decides to go down, you know, it's about two and a half days and he gets down there. And when he gets there, they're waiting for him. They're outside on the road. And David relates, he says, when I arrived at Harmony, Joseph and Oliver, they were coming towards me and met me some distance from the house. And then he said, Oliver told me that Joseph had told him when I started from home, where I stopped the first night, how I read the sign at the tavern and where I stopped the next night, etc., and that I would be there that day before dinner. And that's why they came out to meet me, all of which was exactly as Joseph had told Oliver. And then he says, at which I was greatly astonished. So this is kind of like miracle number two. David is very much aware of these things and in interviews later in his life, because David will live to 1888. And he's the most interviewed witness to the Book of Mormon. And he's telling people these stories. Reporters come and interview him. And like I said, there's an extensive corpus of literature of things that he relates to people about the restoration. And that's a pretty consistent story that he shares. And to him, he saw this as God must be in this work. So they get in the wagon and they head north. And David relates in some of his interviews that Joseph Smith entrusts the plates to Moroni. And on their way back to David's house in the two and a half day journey, at one point they see a fellow who's walking on the road and he has a knapsack and the guy says, Hey, I'm going to Kimura. And they look to Joseph, like, who is this guy? And then they do a double take and the guy's gone. And Joseph tells him, Hey, this is Moroni. And that happens. And so at this point, David is intrigued to say the least. So when they get there to Fayette, Joseph commenced the translation process. And this is where maybe you've seen the video on Mary Whitmer as the witness to the plates, another witness to the Book of Mormon. And we'll link a video in the show notes that you'll be able to access. This story is related not only from David, but also from Jacob's son, John C. Whitmer, who's Mary Whitmer's grandson. So the context of this is Mary's working, she's feeding the family, Joseph and Oliver are working on the translation. These are grown men, and there's work to do. And Mary's doing it, and Joseph and Oliver are doing all this translation. So she's kind of burdened with this work. And on her way to milk the cows one morning, she met a special messenger who said, Mary, 
You've been very faithful and diligent in your labors, but you are tried because of the increase of your toil. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. And so he shows her the plates. And John Whitmer says that when he was 21, his grandma died. And he said, I heard Grandma Mary's story firsthand on what he says were several occasions. And then he says, the kind, friendly tone of the messenger's address. He says, my grandma always talked about how he spoke in a kind, friendly tone, that she had unexpressible joy and satisfaction on hearing this individual show her the engravings on the plates. And in section 25, I think there's echoes of Mary's experience with the plates. Where Emma is kind of saying, why not me? What did I do wrong? And isn't that a normal thing? And we'll talk about that when we get to section 25. It's that, and and the Lord's going to tell Emma, murmur not because of the things that have been withheld. I've withheld them for a divine reason. There's this great scene in C.S. Lewis where someone asks Aslan that represents Christ, why did you do that? And Aslan says, that is her story, not yours. No one has told any story but their own. And, but there's that hint that, well, how come Mary Whitmer got to see the plates and Emma never did? She was just, she was as faithful as can be, but we'll save that for another day. Yeah. So that's the background to section 14. So it's June 1829. The translation is going to be completed June 30th. Remember that a lot of the translations taken place prior to his experience with the Whitmers. Certainly I wasn't there, but I would like to think that David probably had some experience watching this take place in his home, watching the translation take place. And his recollection, I don't think is 100% accurate. In fact, We're going to read an entire account in one of the accounts that he gives towards the end of his life, and then I'll pause and then show some of the inconsistencies. In other words, memory has layers, and sometimes it's nuanced, and sometimes we get our facts mixed up, but we know historically that Joseph and Oliver are there with the plates, and they're translating them in June of 1829. So that's kind of the beginnings. And so knowing this, section 14 is given in this time period. We're ending the translation. We're getting ready to, the printer's manuscript is going to have to be made, but part of the process of the translation of the Book of Mormon is the Lord tells prophets anciently that there's going to be witnesses. So to me, I don't think the Book of Mormon translation, as it were, or the work is complete until we have the witnesses, because that's going to be part of it, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's even called for in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. With that introduction, you're going to, get, you're going to see a significant forewarning So section 14 is the last time the Lord begins the section with a great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. He started that in section 4. He then gives Oliver Cowdery a little bit more detail in section 6. Then in section 11, speaking to Hiram Smith, he starts the exact same way up into a certain point, and then he gives a tailored message to Hiram Smith. And then section 12 to Joseph Knight, he starts the exact same way as 6 and 11, and then he gets to a point, and then he tailors it to Joseph Knight. And now in section 14, he starts the exact same way, and he ends it earlier, Notice in sections 11 and 12, he gives more of section 6 than we get in section 14. As if to say, okay, David, I have a specific thing to say to you. He gets right to the point, and he'll never again say a great and marvelous work is about to come forth. Because why, Mike? 
It's that come, month, it's come forth. the Book of Mormon is finished. The translation is finished. It has come out and now has been written in English. Now, it's not printed, and we don't have the witnesses, but the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is complete. So the Lord will never again say, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth. So clearly, that great and marvelous work that he kept talking about was the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. So then we get to the portion of section 14 that is unique to David Whitmer. And this is where I love the foresight of the Lord, because the Lord is going to simply point out where David is going to go astray. Notice he does this so often. If you'll go to section 23, he says very clearly to Oliver Cowdery in section 23, beware of pride. Very first thing he says, beware of pride. Well, what is it that pulls Oliver out of the church? It was Oliver's pride. So back in section 14, the problem with David Whitmer is listed by the Lord. So he gives us this great verse in verse 7. If you keep the commandments and endure to the end. He just seems to emphasize that. David, you've got to go all the way. You've got to finish this race. You can't get distracted. You can't be fooled. You've got to go all the way. If you keep the commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Now, wouldn't you say, Mike, that David Whitmer's problem is he didn't make it to the end. He didn't endure to the end. He got distracted. He was kind of fooled by an imitation. You can just hear the Lord saying, David, I know what's coming, and you need to endure to the end. And if you do, I'll give you the greatest gift I I can do. And there's kind of a hint here. You'll notice in the scriptures how often the Lord talks about not being fooled by an imitation. See, in the tree of life, there's the tree that will make you happy, and then there's an imitation. There's a false tree, a fake happiness that you're going to think will make you happy. Don't be fooled by the building and lose track of the tree. And you see that all throughout scriptures, is not be fooled by an imitation. In the book of Revelation, there's a beautiful woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon with stars on her head that represents the church. And then there's another woman in the book of Revelation that represents the imitation. Both women are holding a cup in their hand, and it's filled with wine. The church holds the sacrament cup in her hand, but the prostitute, the whore, the, a false church holds an intoxicating beverage in her cup, trying to intoxicate you into an imitation happiness. I think early on in section 14, the Lord's saying, David, don't be fooled by a false happiness. Eternal life is the greatest gift I can give you. Eternal life is the greatest source of happiness. Therefore, stay the course, and your happiness will be greater than anything else you may have to endure. Verse 8, if you do have questions, ask. The Lord will tell you. And then he promises in verse 8 that you can stand as a witness of the things of which you shall both. So a, a precursor to being a witness to the Book of Mormon. 
And that's kind of section 14 to David Whitmer. We get two sections that follow that to his brothers, which we've talked about in terms of knowing how to read the scriptures because it's a repeated message. And so we'll refer you back to section one to the very first Doctrine and Covenants podcast rather than repeat that. But three sections to the Whitmer brothers, Mike. Anything else you want to add to section 14? One thing I would add with verse 7 he kind of hears the same thing from Moroni. Now it's complicated because he gives lots of different accounts of this vision when he sees the plates in spring of 1829. But in one of the accounts, the angel looks right at David and there's a log table and there's plates. And he says there's all kinds of plates. He sees the brass plates, he sees the gold plates, but there's one moment where the angel looks right into his eyes and he said, David, blessed be he that endure to the end almost like a second witness from an angel of God. And there's one thing David doesn't mess up, and it's the divinity of the Book of Mormon. He never denies the angel. He never denies the plates. He never denies the Book of Mormon. He goes and leaves the church and has all kinds of other ideas, but he doesn't take that away. And in that sense, he does stay faithful because towards the end of his life, there was a misunderstanding that he had denied his testimony. And he went out and found 22 citizens of Richmond, Missouri, to swear an oath that he was in his right mind. He was an intelligent, thoughtful person. And then he swore his own oath that he had never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon. So in that, he stays faithful. He does endure to the end. But in so many other areas, he just, we lose him along the way. We're going to lose David Whitmer in 1838. People that interviewed him that weren't even of our faith would make these comments. Like when David talked about the Book of Mormon, there was a change in the room and they recognized it. Um, even one reporter, a, a non member of the church, a non Mormon visitor, we read, he viewed the witness David Whitmer with considerable skepticism. He was moved to admit that this chief witness believes what he says. And so the people that interviewed him talked about how there, there would be a change that would come over David when he would talk about the Book of Mormon. Another interviewer said he got kind of fired up when he talked about the Book of Mormon, and he says he had a hypnotic fluency and almost a kinetic intimacy with his audience. And then one historian writes, apparently an interview with David Whitmer was an overwhelming emotional experience. And so I want to give him props for that. Like David did stay true to that. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that gives us a little bit of background into what's going to happen next. So let's talk a little bit about what happens to David Whitmer. He's a complicated figure. I think David had an expectation that wasn't met. And a lot of this is coming from my reading of his words. So right before he dies, about a year before he dies, he dictates a document called an address to all believers. And it's kind of a binary document. One part is to members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And another part is he writes basically saying, hey, I'm talking to all you Christians out there that have questions about the Book of Mormon. And to both groups, he does testify of the divinity of the Book of Mormon. But then he gives his beef. Hey, here's what I don't like about Joseph Smith. Here's what I don't like about what he calls the Utah Mormons. And he says things like, hey, I'm not a Mormon. In that address, and we link it to the show notes, it's public domain. You can have access to it and read it for yourself. History it's 78 pages, so be careful. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Not a, it's not a quick 
testimony. It's right. a lengthy disposition. And faith-wise, it's not going to build your faith. You're not going to read what he's saying and be like, well, thanks, Mike, for recommending that I spend my life reading those 78 pages. But on the other hand, I think in doing this podcast, Bryce and I want to stay true to history, where we show both sides. As members of the church, we kind of cherry pick the things that he says that say what we want him to say, and we read it, and we're like, isn't this awesome? But then our enemies do the same thing. Uh, Critics of the church will pick the things that David says, and they'll use the, the words of David Whitmer against us. And so I think the best approach is to take a holistic approach, but to do that takes a lot of time. And we live in a world where, what's that phrase? People are ever learning, but they never come to a knowledge of the truth. It's so easy to make a meme or to do something to kind of pull down faith and try to make a point, and then you miss the whole story. So really to understand David Whitmer, we're not going to be able to do it justice in this podcast, but what we want to try to present is who he was from those perspectives. And so the church probably didn't meet his expectations, and what I mean by that is this. If you read his words, essentially what he's looking for is a very simple provincial church where everybody is in charge, where everybody can have a say. And so to him, right out of the gate in the Doctrine and Covenants where it talked about we're going to do all things by common consent, his view of common consent isn't the way we do common consent today. His view is, hey, if I'm in a room of 20 people and we kind of vote on it and we kind of go with the, with the flow, we kind of go with it. And early on in the Doctrine and Covenants, There are these verses where the Lord says, hey, Joseph's my guy. In fact, why don't we read one of them to kind of get that flow? During the meeting to restore the church on April 6th, 1830, the Lord gives a revelation right in front of everyone. And he says right up front, there will be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle, an elder. And then in section 20, what does he call Joseph? the first elder. Verse 2 of section 20, he calls Joseph Smith the first elder, and Oliver Cowdery is the second elder. And those are kind of the, okay, Joseph is my guy. And then the section, uh, section 28, where Hiram's page has a seer stone and thinks, well, I get revelation because I have the stone. And the Lord says, no, 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 it's not that way. The thinking was, whoever has a stone can get revelation. Joseph happens to have it right now, but if someone else has a stone, you can get revelation. That's how it works. If you have a stone, you get revelation. And the Lord makes it very clear in section 28, uh, 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 it has to do with keys and authorities of the priesthood. And Joseph has them. He is the presiding officer. And so very early, we start to rub David Whitmer wrong because his expectation is more of a community church rather than a hierarchical priesthood. And a lot of David's issues have to do with that hierarchical priesthood. He does not like the Melchizedek priesthood that Joseph brings, and that's kind of where they depart. Yeah, and and it doesn't meet those expectations. And so later in his life, as he talks about this, he'll even say things like, I don't like the structure of the priesthood. And he has a bunch of things that he struggles with, but that's one of them. He also denigrates the Doctrine and Covenants and says, all we need is the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Now, one historian says this about David's expectation and that concept. This is Ken Godfrey. Matthias Cowley, after talking with David Whitmer, was impressed that he, David Whitmer, stood in the same position to the Book of Mormon as the sectarians did to the Bible. 
David Whitmer told him that the Book of Mormon contained everything that's necessary to guide us until the Savior comes. David did not understand the essential core of the restoration. Joseph was a prophet through whom God spoke and would continue to speak, and David did not seem to grasp the importance of continuing revelation if the little stone from the book of Daniel was to increase in size as it rolled forth. Thus he was left behind, clinging to his Book of Mormon, insisting that Joseph Smith and his introduction of a priesthood hierarchy and the changing revelations caused God to reject Joseph. David Whitmer, though a good, honest man, was mistaken in his assessment of the post-1835 Joseph Smith. Mormonism would not have endured had its leaders relied solely on the Book of Mormon. Now that's Ken Godfrey. Ken is one of those that has read everything. He's read all the old paper on what's going on with David Whitmer and what his expectations were. And so to reiterate, early on in the church, from my assessment of listening to David Whitmer speak for himself, the idea that Joseph's in charge, really he struggled against that. But David was not one who wanted to be in charge. David was one who says, hey, we're just kind of a community of all believers. Then later when the church goes to Ohio and they meet Sidney Rigdon, Sidney's a very charismatic fellow and he knows the scriptures. And with Sidney come all kinds of converts and the church grows and it becomes more corporate. And by that, what I mean is they're collecting land. They're also governing things. They say, hey, Bryce, we want you to move here. We want you to plant this crop. We want you to do this. Oh, by the way, then consecration comes. What does that mean? Hey, Bryce, we need you to give this. We need you to go and donate money here. And the church starts to amass wealth and corporate influence. And then later, political influence when the saints go to Missouri. And you can kind of see as you as you read David's words, like I said, you can read an address to all believers, which he dictates to a fellow. He doesn't write it, which is interesting. He doesn't write it because he blew his hand up. His right hand is missing a thumb. There's got to be so much to that story. So your right hand doesn't have a thumb. So he's dictating this, right? And then I think about that and I think, what would David Whitmer and his witness have been like had he had a hand? Would he have written more? Would he have written letters? Would we have even more stuff? No wonder we have all these interviews. Because it's He wanted talking. to speak. He, he did. Wanted. He had an urge inside him. It's like Jeremiah says, that the word of God was like him, a fire shut up in his bones. And yeah. David Whitmer wanted to speak. He took every opportunity that he could if he would have had to a talk thumb. about it. If he had had a chance to write. Don't you think he would have? What would we have? So here's my take. I think he's just bitter. I think it, the church wasn't what he hoped it would be. It became bigger, and Joseph was the president. And so... Because it didn't, he was still clinging to the 1831 church, and he never denied the validity of the Book of Mormon. But now what gets really interesting, and I'm not, we're not going to settle it in this podcast, and there's a, lo- a lot of ink is spilled on this, and I certainly don't know, but there's a strong argument that can be made that a lot of the stuff about Joseph looking in the hat is coming from David, and that perhaps David told that story to cast doubt on Joseph. If you can separate Joseph's seership due to righteousness, but you could pivot to it being a gift, that's a huge difference. David talked about the spectacles, as they're called, or the Urim and Thummim, and the witnesses talk about how it has to be by righteousness. But if you read David Whitmer's, a lot of his accounts, and they're contradictory, they're all over the place. But if you read his discussion of the means of translation, how it happened, 
I think he kind of denigrates Joseph, and I think he's doing that on purpose. Now, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I submit that as an argument. And we like have a, collected the statements from Oliver Cowdery, from Emma, from everyone else that was there, and they just don't match. What Oliver Cowdery says about the translation process doesn't seem to match well with what David Whitmer says about the translation process. So there's just left a question in our minds. Does David have a bone to pick? And so he's tainting his memories of the translation process. And if we really rely on Joseph Smith, we have very little to go with yeah. because Joseph just chose not to say anything about the translation. Historian Ken Godfrey, he says, David Whitmer himself was not free from inconsistency when recounting his views on the priesthood. For example, David Cannon reported in 1861, when he visited David Whitmer, the two men with others stood beside the grave of Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery was going to die in 1850. We'll talk about that in a minute. David declared that he heard Oliver say, I know the gospel to be true. And upon this head, meaning Oliver's head, Peter, James, and John laid their hands on me and conferred the Melchizedek priesthood. David also displayed for the group how this was done. So David knew about the Melchizedek priesthood, which in other interviews he says there is no Melchizedek priesthood. So this is the inconsistency or the what I like to call the messiness of history. While the historicity of the restoration of the priesthood authority is complex, Godfrey says, and the documentation is not nearly as clear as we'd like it to be, certainly David Whitmer's testimony that casts doubt on the appearance of John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John should not be accepted as true, especially in light of what he himself told David Cannon in 1861. So David Whitmer probably made other historical errors as well, Godfrey says. He says he was mistaken in affirming that the manuscript given to him by Oliver Cowdery was the original Book of Mormon manuscript. All historians agree that what he possessed was the second printer's copy. His assertion that the Missouri Danites originated with Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon is also problematic, and one with which many good historians would quarrel. Moreover, we have seen that his assertions that Joseph Smith did not have the Yerman Thummim after the loss of the 116-page manuscript that he did not have the plates as he translated, or that he translated only by means of a stone placed in the bottom of a hat, can be seriously questioned. That's Ken Godfrey's assertion as a historian as he's looked at the records. I want to just relate to you an event that happened in his life that really caused him to pause. You see, Oliver Cowdery, he leaves also in 1838. A lot of members of the church struggle in 1838, but he comes back to the church and he's headed west. He's like, I'm going to come to Utah. I'm going to come be with the saints. But he makes a trip down to Richmond to go see his brother-in-law. He wants to go see David, and he wants to reclaim him. And while he's there, he gets really sick, and he dies. He dies March 3rd, 1850. So he doesn't even live to 44. He's 43 when he dies. He dies as a young man, Oliver Cowdery does. And in his possession is the printer's manuscript, back to that second copy that we talked about. The original manuscript, as we related earlier, is going to be put in the Nauvoo house in its cornerstone. And a huge chunk of it is damaged by water over time. And so the printer's manuscript, historically, is kind of a big deal because... That's what we have. Well, so in 1850, he dies, and he gives the printer's manuscript to David. And here's the provenance of the manuscript. So it goes from Oliver Cowdery to David Whitmer, and then David Whitmer, when he 
gets older, gives it to his grandson, George. And then in 1903, his grandson, George, gives it to the RLDS Church, or what's called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that is today called the Community of Christ. It goes into their possession in 1903. And then in 2017, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints purchased the printer's manuscript. So that's the provenance of the text. And all historians agree that this is the printer's manuscript. But if you read David's words as he talks about what he has in his possession, he sees it as the original manuscript. And he gives a story where he relates to an individual where he says a cyclone came in through Richmond and just tore up everything. It's June 1878, and without any warning, a tornado comes and just devastates the town. And he talks about how you can see the track where it just comes and rips everything up. And this is in a really good book by Lyndon Cook called The David Whitmer Interviews. He relates, The cyclone had struck a portion of his house, but not a small room built on the side in which the manuscripts and other relics of the early rise of the church were kept. And after the storm passed, it was found that all the relics, as he calls them, had been left uninjured. David himself was not in the house, and he found himself senseless. He talks with another reporter where he says, This spot was recently occupied by a large mechanic shop and is immediately back or north of David's residence, not more than a couple of rods. This shop, with all of its contents, was literally demolished by the cyclone. I saw the remains of a carriage just finished for Whitmer's livery service, but not delivered when the cyclone passed over. It was absolutely smashed, twisted, and riven to atoms. Such a wreck I could not have conceived. Even the tires were twisted into inconceivable shapes, and not a spoke, fellow, or scarcely a bolt left in its place. Some of the spokes had been taken clean out of the hubs, where they had just been compressed by powerful machinery with a pressure of 20 tons. One man from this shop was blown a great distance right through the house. And so he's just in shock that the tornado ripped through his house, but that the printer's manuscript was intact. Now, historically, we know that it's the printer's manuscript and it was safe in his house. But David's contention is that this is the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, and that's how he approaches it. And so to give an example of the messiness of history, we're going to read one of the interviews from David Whitmer. And if you remember, Ken Godfrey warns us about what's called the inconsistency of memory. David's going to die January 25th, 1888, and he's going to give this interview to the Richmond Democrat in January of 1888. So this is right towards the end of his life. And it's literally called his last word. If you pick up a copy of Lennon Cook's book called The David Whitmer Interviews, and I'm just going to read this interview that he gives about the Book of Mormon. And then I'm going to point out some of the inconsistencies just to show all of us just kind of how history works. So here it is. When he was 24 years of age and working on his father's farm near Palmyra, New York, then all that section of the country was more or less excited over the reported discovery by Joseph Smith of the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. Oliver Cowdery, the village school teacher, mentioned the matter to him and announced his determination to visit Smith and investigate the matter for himself, promising Mr. Whitmer, at the latter's request, to advise him of the result. A few days later, he received a letter from Cowdery urging him to join him, which he did, being received by the prophet with open arms. 
After remaining long enough to satisfy himself of the divine inspiration of Smith, the three returned to Whitmer's home, where it was agreed that the work of translation should be prosecuted. Shortly after his return, and while he was plowing in the field one afternoon, he was visited by Smith and Cowdery, who requested that he should accompany them into the woods on a hill across the road for the purpose of witnessing a manifestation that should qualify he and Cowdery to bear witness to the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Smith explaining that such procedure was in accordance with explicit instruction he had received from an angel of the Lord. Repairing to the woods... They engaged in prayer for a short time when suddenly a great light shone round about him, far brighter and more dazzling than the brilliancy of the noonday sun, seemingly enveloping the wood for a considerable distance. A spirit of elevation seized him as a joy indescribable and a strange influence stole over him, which so entranced him that he felt that he was chained to the spot. A moment later, a divine personage clothed in white raiment appeared unto them, and immediately in front of the personage stood a table, on which lay a number of gold plates, some brass plates, and the Urim and Thummim, and the sword of Laban. All of these they were directed to examine carefully, and after their examination they were told that the Lord would demand that they bear witness thereof to all the world. These plates were engraved with characters termed in the Book of Mormon, Reformed Egyptian, characters unknown to the linguists of the present day, which is claimed as a fulfillment of the prophecy Isaiah. And the word of the Lord has come unto them as the leaves of a book, which are sealed, and which is delivered unto him that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed, etc. A slip of paper containing a facsimile of these characters, traced by Joseph Smith, was submitted to the celebrated Professor Anthon and others, and all confessed their inability to translate them, recognizing in them characteristics of several ancient alphabets. This slip is still in Mr. Whitmer's possession and is cherished with the same sacred care that he bestows on the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, which he also has. Notice it's called the original here. While describing this vision to us, all traces of a severe cold from which he was suffering disappeared for the time being. His form straightened, his countenance assumed almost a beautiful expression, and his tones became strangely eloquent. Although evidently no studied effort... The description was a magnificent piece of word painting, and he carried his hearers with him to that lonely hill by the old farm, and they stood there with him, awed in the divine presence. Skeptics may laugh and scoff if they will, but no man could listen to Mr. Whitmer as he talks of his interview with the angel of the Lord without being most forcibly convinced that he has heard an honest man tell what he honestly believes to be true. The result of this vision was a proclamation setting forth the facts enumerated. The Yerman Thummim mentioned in the account of the vision were a pair of transparent stone spectacles. Smith would put on the spectacles when a few words of the text of the Book of Mormon would appear on the lenses. When these were correctly transcribed by Cowdery, who acted as his amanuensis, which means scribe, these words would disappear and others would take their place. When the 116 pages were completed, Smith entrusted them to Martin Harris to take to his home with a view to convert his family to the new faith. They were placed at night in a bureau drawer and the next morning were missing, having been stolen. They were never found and never replaced, so that the Book of Mormon today is shorter than number of pages of the original matter. As a chastisement for his carelessness, the Urman Thummim was taken from Smith. But by humbling himself, he again found favor with the Lord and was presented with a strange oval-shaped chocolate-colored stone, about the size of an egg, but more flat, which it was promised should answer the same purpose. With this stone, all the present book was translated. 
the prophet would place his stone in a hat, and then he'd put his face in the hat and read the words that appeared thereon. The stone is the only relic of the prophet's work in existence, which is not in possession of Mr. Whitmer. It was confided to Oliver Cowdery and preserved by him until his death in 1852. Notice he says it's 1852. After that event, Phineas Young succeeded in getting it from Cowdery's widow, and it is now among the sacred relics preserved at Salt Lake City. Okay, so that's the interview. And if you read history and you get into this a little bit, you start to see some of the inconsistencies in the narrative. For example, he talks about how it's the original manuscript. That's significant. It certainly was not. He talks about how the night after the manuscript, or what we call the stolen manuscript or the lost manuscript, the night after it was put in the bureau, it was it was missing, having been stolen. Well, we know it was actually much longer than that. So David Whitmer wasn't there. These things happened before, and it's kind of hearsay to him, him not knowing, him not being Martin Harris and not being associated with these things, and it's been 50 years since then. His history and his memory is a little bit messy there. Another thing he talks about in the interview where he says, this stone is the only relic of the prophet's work and existence, which is not in possession of Mr. Whitmer. It just is just not true. I mean, there were five relics that we mentioned in section 17, and David has none of them. So... He doesn't have any of them. Now, he might think that his manuscript or the printer's manuscript is a relic, and, and that's fine if he wants to call it that, but he doesn't have access to the five things in section 17, and we have the date of Oliver Cowdery's death wrong. And so when we read history, we just kind of have to comb through these things and read them and say, okay, okay, maybe this isn't right, but we kind of get a flavor of the general feeling. One thing that comes through in this interview is that the interviewer from the Richmond Democrat is impressed with David believing what David's saying, that he's convinced, David is convinced that what he's talking about is true. Another thing that we find consistently in these narratives, as you go through all the accounts that we have, like I said, he's the most interviewed account, and Lennon Cook's done a good job of putting these together, we do see some consistencies. He's solid on the Book of Mormon. He's solid that it's divine but he's consistently working to undercut Joseph. And so for me as a Latter-day Saint, obviously I wasn't there. If I'm going to pick David Whitmer or Joseph and take one of them at their word as to the translation, I'm going to go with Joseph. The Lord talks about Joseph's translating it. Joseph said he was that it was translated. I certainly don't look at it as he's a reader of a text in a stone. I understand what David's saying, and I know that there were other people who gave accounts. And so historically, I'm gathering this information, and I'm putting this together to create a matrix of accounts. But like anything, it's not perfect, and there's messiness in there. And so hopefully this helps give us a little bit of a perspective. People who kind of throw stones at the church because of David Whitmer's account of the translation need to recognize that it may have been slightly tainted from David Whitmer because of his departure from Joseph Smith. Yeah. So Now that being said, it's complicated. But it's it's been complicated from the very beginning. Do you remember faithful Jews who thought they were so religious and yet Jesus shows up and isn't the Messiah they thought he was and so they reject him. They reject the Messiah because he didn't match their expectation. Um, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's thousands of people cheering him on, 
I've wondered how many of those same thousands are at Pilate's palace a few days later asking for his crucifixion because he just came in and he didn't do the miracles. He didn't live up to their expectations. And so here we have a David Whitmer who has this very clear expectation of what the restored church of Christ is going to look like. And when it doesn't, he can't deal with that. And he leaves. He does not endure to the end like he was told. And one of the lessons we need to learn from David Whitmer is what are you going to do when God doesn't answer your prayers the way you think he should? When the Messiah turns out to be not the Messiah you hoped for, when grandma doesn't get healed and mom doesn't recover from the cancer, what are you going to do when your expectations are not met. A lot of us have modern-day expectations. Well, if this is the church of Jesus Christ, then it should be perfect. And when we discover that it's not perfect, sometimes we, like David Whitmer, walk away. And I wonder if there's a little hint in this when Joseph Smith says, I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God. But we frequently see some of them, after suffering all they have for the work of God, will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. I wonder if there was a hint of David Whitmer there that he held on to his tradition, his expectation of what the church of Christ should be like. And when that's not the direction Joseph went, he walked away. Like many of Jesus' disciples walked away when he wasn't the Messiah that they expected him to be. So great lesson, great insight. Keep going, Mike. So he gets married in 1831. He marries Julia Ann Pauly. They go to Ohio, and I can see him struggling right away. Um, it, it kind of foments. In 1834, he's appointed president of the Clay County High Council, and then on July 7th, president of the church in Missouri. And he does give great leadership down there. When the saints get kicked out of Jackson County, he's just right there with them, and he's serving, and he's doing well. But after becoming a general agent for the church's literary firm in September of 1835, And then when he goes to the temple dedication in March and April of 1836, when the temple's dedicated in Kirtland, we see the beginnings of kind of what's going on in in, in his heart. And so there's a small group of people in the church right about that time period that they stop sustaining Joseph Smith, March, April, 1836, and they start undermining Joseph's leadership. And so timeline-wise, there's this meeting. So before the temple's dedicated in 1836, before that, it's February. So in February 1836, there are these group of saints, and they're together, and they're just kind of upset with Joseph. Things aren't meeting their expectation. Now, we'll talk more about this when we get to the Ohio period, so I'm going to do big picture stuff, but part of it is there are some people making a lot of money. As the church gro- is growing, they're kind of speculating on land, and they're doing well. High demand. Lots yeah. of people coming into Kirtland. Prices shoot right up. They do. And some people are making a lot of money, including a few members of the Quorum of the Twelve. Yeah. David sees it as kind of a power grab. He sees Joseph Smith as the president of the church, 
people are listening to him. And so a group get together and they say, hey, we want to form a new church and we're going to make David Whitmer in charge. Well, in this meeting, kind of sitting there laying out listening are a couple of guys you might have heard of, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. And they're sitting there, and this is where we get the story where Brigham stands up and he says, Joseph was a prophet, Brigham says. I knew it, and you could rail and slander him as much as you want, but you cannot destroy the appointment of the prophet of God. And he basically just chastises these guys. You can say what you can do is cut the thread tying you to the prophet. Yeah. And then, of course, it's Brigham Young. So he says, you cut that thread, you sink yourself to hell. I mean, that's just Brigham Young. It's classic Brigham. And that happens before the dedication. Now, why is this important? Because after the dedication of the temple, many years later, David Whitmer is going to negate some of the stories that people say about the dedication. And if you go historically to understand that this meeting took place prior to the dedication, to me, I read this and say, I kind of have a window into David's heart. Now, I'm not saying David did or did not have those experiences, but if you remember how we talked about Joseph Smith, and he sees the angel, and perhaps others were also present and couldn't see it, I'm open to the idea that there were people that were there at the dedication that had those experiences. And if David's heart's in this condition that maybe he was not in a space for that. And so then after this, after this experience, and in his writings, he talks a lot about this, how he rejects the leadership of the prophets and the Doctrine and Covenants. And he leaves the church uh, before plural marriage is openly discussed in Nauvoo. But later in his life, he's like, yeah, I reject plural marriage, and I reject Joseph's mantle as prophet. And he, he says this over and over again, and we cite this in the show notes, where he says, I think Joseph has fallen into error. But then he makes this point. He says, I will say once more to everyone that I've never at any time denied my testimony or any part thereof of the Book of Mormon. He goes on and on about being true to that. So that's a little bit about Ohio. But then he goes into Missouri. So 1836, he's there for the dedication. And then he goes into Missouri and things kind of go off the rails in Missouri because we've been kicked out of Jackson County. And so now the Saints in 1838 in the fall are in the northern part of, of Missouri, and there's a huge falling out with the government, and the people in Missouri rise up and say, hey, you've got to go. And during this time period, there's a group of people, and you might have heard of them, they're called the Danites, and there's a group of members of the church that basically say, hey, we're going to arm ourselves and we're going to defend ourselves, but it quickly goes from defending to attacking. And if you read David Whitmer's statements, and you just coordinate this with what John Corll's saying, and you can go and read all this in the Joseph Smith papers, and we'll do extensive stuff on this when we get to 1838 violence and what's called the Mormon War from the historic perspective. It's at this point where it's like the last straw. He sees the violence. He sees it on both sides. And I think historically, that's pretty safe to say that there's violence on both sides of the coin. And so in 1838, uh, he leaves the church. Now, not only does he leave the church, but all of his living family members leave as well. Now, what's interesting is a couple of his brothers pass away. Christian, his brother, dies at age 37 in November 1835. And Peter dies at 27 in 1836. And so whenever we talk about the witnesses, I always like to say, hey, Christian and Peter endured to the end. But when David leaves, he doesn't just leave. 
he takes his family with him. And they go to this place called Richmond, Missouri. It's in Ray County. And that's where he's going to live for the next 50 years. There are some really cool tidbits of history that I think are worth at least looking at because for the next 50 years, he's going to be interviewed a ton of times. So a lot of the interviews that David does are going to be between 1869 and 1888. And in 1875, he's interviewed by the Chicago Times. And he talks about the stone box that the Book of Mormon was in. And he says that everybody was abuzz about the Book of Mormon. And he says a lot of people knew that Joseph had it. There were people that were associates of Joseph, and they knew he had it because they saw the stone box in Cumorah. He says three times he'd been to the hill Cumorah, and then he writes this. He says, I've seen the casket that contained the tablets and the seer stone. He calls it a casket. Eventually, the casket had been washed down to the foot of the hill, but it was to be seen when he last visited the historic place. And he declares, this is, this is uh, David talking to the reporter, he declares that he'd never been a Mormon as the term is commonly interpreted, but he's a believer in the book. Now, that might sound strange to a modern reader when we read that David says he saw the casket, especially the way we use that word today in English. But if you go to the 1828 Dictionary of the English Language and you type in the word casket and you look up that word, it means a small treasure box. So what was that stone box? I think it's the ark because that box contained five things. And those five things are the Nephite equivalent to the Israelite ark. And David says, before I ever saw the plates, I saw that stone box. And he's like, I was convinced Joseph had something. Section 17, verse 1, tells us what the three witnesses were going to see. And it's a whole lot more than just the gold plates. I think there's a lot of Latter-day Saints who don't realize this extensive list. So section 17, verse 1, Behold, I say unto you that you must rely on my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared, and then, and the miraculous directors, which were given to Lehi, meaning, I assume, we all think, the Leahona. So that stone box contained the plates, the breastplate, the Urim and Thummim, the sword of Laban, and the Leahona. Now, what's significant is they are very similar to the Old Testament Ark, right, Mike? Yes. So what's the connection between... This is basically a representation of the Nephite Ark of Covenant as compared to the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. So when Nephi goes to America, he also forms kind of an Ark of the Covenant. Because they're the branch of Israel. And so... authorized. They're carrying the priesthood with them. Totally. They are authorized to do this. Yeah, totally. So the equivalencies are pretty easy to see, mostly. So as the Israelites had a chest or an ark, and that's kind of what the word means, it was this treasure box and it was gold, the Nephites seem to have one that's made of stone. As the Israelites had stone tablets with the law, the Nephites had gold tablets with the law. So there's kind of an inversion happening, almost like a pun, as it were. So they both have the record. So that's easy, stone tablets and the gold plates. Well, Aaron had a rod that budded and a pot of manna. So what would the Nephite equivalent to that be? Well, in general terms, 
these things are parallels. The pot of manna memorialized God's miraculous providing the Israelites with sustenance on their journey. We read that in Exodus 16, 13. In the morning, the dew laid around the host, and when the dew lay there was gone up, behold, the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, Exodus 16. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said, and here's the pun, it is manna, for they wist not what it was. Well, that word manna means, what is it? Aaron's rod was an instrument for divining God's will. To settle the dispute over who had the right to serve in the priestly role in the tabernacle, each of the 12 tribes placed a rod in, and then that's how they decide the one that budded. So what was the sacred object with these functions in the exodus of Lehi's family? How do they divine God's will and receive sustenance from him? It was the Liahona. That's what they used. That's how they got their sustenance. And so that would be like a Nephite equivalent to the pot of manna. Think about the Liahona. The Liahona had writing on it, but it represented that God was with them. And one of our listeners one time said, what did ancient kings do with these symbols? Because these are symbols of kingship. And if you do a search of some of the art, especially of the early European kings, they have a small round thing in their hand. It kind of represents an orb or God giving them the authority to stand in their stead. These kings are doing this. Now there was a sword in the Holy of Holies, the sword of David, and the Nephites had the sword of Laban. And both stories are typified as God ordaining a prophet, priest, and king to go represent them. So in the narrative in the Bible, we have David, who uses a sword. And in the narrative of the Book of Mormon, we have Nephi, who uses a sword. And if you go to 1 Samuel 21, you can read about that, how the sword was part of the cache of the sacred relics of kingship. So we have a sword, we have the record, we have the orb or Aaron's rod. And then in both cases, the high priest had these things that were associated with revelation in the Holy of Holies. They had a breastplate we read about in the Old Testament, and we read about the Urim and Thummim. Now that's plural. It just means lights and perfections. The priest in the Old Testament would have a, we think, a white and a dark stone, and he would use these to discern or divine the will of God and to make those kinds of decisions. And so in the Nephite culture, they have these two small clear stones in silver bows that we know from multiple accounts that Joseph is using in the translation process. But all five of these things are associated with kingship. It's difficult to totally put this in words. But if you think about these five things, they were associated with the ark, they're associated with the Holy of Holies, and underneath the Holy of Holies was the foundation stone. And that stone is where you're going to measure everything off of that stone. And the term they use in the New Testament is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And you read in Helaman, right? Remember the rock upon which you are built. And so I think there's lots of levels or layers to section 17, and one of them is this. God is establishing, where do we go for truth? And so one of the things we understand or we go to is, anciently, they used these symbols to represent, Nephi had them. These relics represented his authority to represent God. And anciently, especially in Christianity, they're chasing relics all over, because if we can tie into a relic that's really old, it kind of lends holiness and credence and validity to what we're saying. So we see God doing this, like gadgets or relics, whatever you want to call them. God is tying this in. One of the main things I think that is important to emphasize here 
when people say, well, why is this even necessary? I think one reason is to serve as evidence, which leads to the second thing, which is the historicity of the text. What I mean by that is there are people that say things like, the Book of Mormon's made me a better person. It teaches really good principles, but it certainly isn't historical. One scholar even said, to those of you that think that the Book of Mormon is historical, I just have one thing to say to you. Grow up. And my rebuttal to that argument is simply section 17. Because those five things are in there, David Whitmer, Martin Harris, and Oliver Cowdery testified that they saw them. Which tells me this is historical. Which tells me that there was a Nephi. There was a sort of Laban. When we start tying these things in, I'm stretching out my arms. My right hand is stretched out into antiquity, and my left hand is stretched past the Enlightenment into an age where we want evidences, and I see God with his hands, and he's tying them together. And the knot is the Book of Mormon. God is saying the Book of Mormon parts the veil, and we're walking into the Old Testament. We're walking into and we're standing on the foundation stone, and God's showing these individuals this book and this authority and these things are the accruements of kingship, authority, and how we can judge. And to me, that's how David Whitmer goes wrong. He likes the Book of Mormon up until it doesn't do what he expects it to do. And when it stops doing what he expects, he's out. Now, I also want to just cut him some slack. I wasn't in Missouri in 1838, and as I read the accounts of what was going on, I can certainly see how you would struggle with faith when there's violence on both sides. But as I've studied his words and I've studied the things that David did, it was way before 1838 that he started having these problems. And so maybe that's another lesson, Bryce, we get out of this, and it's that the road to apostasy isn't made in a day, but it's kind of a process. Now, going back to section 17, before we leave that idea of the historicity of the Book of Mormon and the kingship, that Nephi really did have relics that showed that he had authority. So what the Lord's doing in section 17 is just saying the Book of Mormon is the door that opens all of this up. And then the Lord himself bears his testimony and swears with an oath about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. And this is extremely significant. Section 17, verse 6, the Lord says, He has translated the book, even that part which I have commanded him. And as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. What he just did is he put his Godhood on the line. Either the Book of Mormon is true, or he is not God. As your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. That is a bold statement. Nephi swore an oath with his brothers that said, we will not go back to our father until we've obtained the plates. Meaning, we're going to get those plates or we're going to die trying. He swore with an oath, and then he was bound to do it. And here God swears with an oath. And he says, as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. 
the Lord has borne his testimony. Now, verse 9, he identifies himself. I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it unto you. So the Lord leaves his testimony on record, not only of the Book of Mormon, but of the man who brought it forth. He is testifying of Joseph and of the Book of Mormon. And this is how we kind of leave the Whitmers. It's like, okay, David, I testify that he brought it forth, that he is my servant, and that this book is true. And so there's the foil. The last two weeks are a tremendous comparison between the Whitmers and the Knights. And the Lord warned the Whitmers, if you endure to the end, you will have eternal life, which is the greatest of all the gifts. And unfortunately... He doesn't endure to the end. And so a great lesson, a great contrast to the knights. But again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the way we began. In no intention of harming a reputation or speaking evil of anyone, it's just the spirit of Moroni. You have seen the mistakes that other people have made so that we can be more wise than they were. May we endure to the end. When that day comes and the Lord doesn't answer your prayers the way you anticipated, if the church isn't what you expect it to be, remember David Whitmer and remember the promises. If you endure to the end, you will have eternal life. I am grateful for David. I'm grateful for the lesson that he learned. I hope his reconciliation with Joseph Smith in the spirit world uh, put him back on the straight and narrow path but he has been a tremendous influence in my life to remember what to do when Jesus doesn't answer our prayers the way we thought he would, and he doesn't do what we expect him to do. Let's still stay faithful. Like Peter would say, where would we go? Lord, where would we go? And with that, we end, and we'll come back next time as we we approach the organization of the church. Um, We're going to come back to... Martin Harris and printing of the Book of Mormon. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.